country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hi everyone, this is Jackie Baker coming to you from Murdoch University, which stands on the unceded land of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation. Indonesia is an important hub for metal and mineral extraction. In 2020, Indonesia was ranked ninth in the world for the value of metallic minerals and coal. Indonesia's extractive sector makes up 25% of its exports. It's an important contributor to GDP, to government revenue, to jobs and technology transfer. But at the same time, scholarship has also documented how the extractive industries have generated social conflict, from armed separatism to political protest and high-profile legal cases. From Aceh to West Papua's notorious Freeport Grasberg mine, extractive industries have been held responsible for environmental destruction, land disposition and even gross human rights abuses. Much has been written about the extractive industries, but today's guest, Dr. Leon Sinclair from the School of Geosciences at the University of Sydney, takes a very unique angle. Leon focuses on how corporations, governments, community groups and NGOs contest the uneven costs and benefits of the extractive industries. And a core part of her work has been looking at how and why groups embrace, adapt to or resist mining projects. Her book, Undermining Resistance, Extractive Accumulation, Participation and Governance in Global Capitalism is contracted with Manchester University Press and an Indonesian version known as Dibawatana Perlawanan Pertambangan Multinasional di Indonesia will be released by Insys Press at the same time. Her latest research project examines the political economy of new critical minerals necessary to the global transition away from carbon. Welcome to Talking Indonesia, Leon. Hi, Jackie. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invite. Really, it's a pleasure to be here talking with your listeners. Part of your work has been to develop an understanding of the international and domestic actors that have been involved in extraction in Indonesia. Why is that important and and what does that tell us about Indonesia? Thanks. Great, great question to start on. Uh, You mentioned in your introduction that the products of mining, which includes both uh, the raw ores, the raw minerals, plus also the refined products and metals that that are made out of those ores, uh, make up just over one quarter of exports in in Indonesia. However, mining only contributes about 6.2% to GDP. So, we can see that mining is, is a very concentrated, it's a very centralized industry. It's important for exports, which means that it's important for foreign exchange earnings, and it's important for Indonesia's position in the global economy. However, it's probably not that significant in the day-to-day lives of most ordinary people, unless a mining company comes to town and wants to take your land and, and turn that into a mine, then it's going to affect you profoundly, right? So my focus has has mostly been on the way that multinational mining corporations and global contestation over mining, how that plays out in Indonesia. Uh, However, the national scale is also incredibly important in coordinating development strategies based on mining and other natural resources. We call this national scale ideology of development that's based on exploiting natural resources extractivism. And in Indonesia... There's a long history of resource nationalism 
right? This is the idea that the natural resources of Indonesia belong to the people and should be exploited to benefit, quote unquote, the people. In one chapter of my book, I trace the historical evolution of extractivism in Indonesia. And I argue that this really solidified during the new order years as really an alliance of convenience emerged between multinational mining companies on one hand, uh, the military, Sahato's government and family, and then new emergent domestic tycoon, domestic conglomerate class of uh, Indonesian capitalists. Right? And, and that, that basic structure of that alliance has defined has defined extractivism and defined those national scale contestations over mining since then, even as the balance of power between those various actors within the alliance has shifted. So we saw resource nationalist policies being implemented, particularly since the 2009 mining law. We've seen most multinational mining companies have actually exited Indonesia, right? So Newmont, for example, sold its Batu Hijau uh, copper mine, uh, in 2016. In March 2020, Newcrest sold its Gosawong gold mine. And most famously, Freeport has finally divested their ownership of the, the Grassberg mine in West Papua down to 49% of, of ownership. So we've seen a profound rebalancing of who owns Indonesia's largest and most important mines. So you're documenting this transition from multinational ownership to domestic ownership. But nonetheless, a big part of your research is examining the role that transnational or global governance plays in facilitating more, let's say, responsive or fairer relationships between mining companies and Indonesian communities. Why hasn't the globalisation of regulation produced good outcomes for local communities in Indonesia? What I found when I was looking at uh, different contestations that are involved that are mostly between these multinational corporations and, and local communities is that multinational uh, corporations employ what I call, what I refer to as a dual scalar strategy in response to crises of legitimacy. Now, what does that mean? Crises of legitimacy means that all different local conflicts, uh, you know, confined to particular areas, these conflicts can, can scale up as the local communities find allies, as they make their issues and their struggles heard on an international level to international audiences or even national audiences, as these different conflicts aggregate together, this creates crises of legitimacy for particular mining companies or, or indeed its extractive industries more generally. Famous examples that people would have heard of uh, in Indonesia, but in other locations around the world as well, include ongoing and violent struggle in, in West Papua, the, you know, the civil war in Bougainville, just next door in Papua New Guinea, so on and so forth. Many examples of these localized conflicts gaining international attention, creating crises of legitimacy that multinational mining companies need to respond to. And so when I say that multinational mining companies have responded with a dual scalar strategies is they want to move the governance of environmental and social impacts of mining to the global scale, but they want to relocalize the management of the specific conflicts at that local level to stop the local communities and activists from creating these international alliances and, and more crises. So when we think about global governance, we think about private industry associations and standards and agreements 
The International Council for Metals and Mining is, is a big example, and there are 10 principles for sustainable development that sets standards and principles for, for all their member companies, which include the, the biggest mining companies in the world to adhere to. Uh, and that's a very generalized set of standards. And then we also have a whole range of very specific ones. You know, one, one that I like to talk about that's a very specific example is the International Code and Management for the Use and Transportation of Cyanide, right, which only ref- affects gold miners because cyanide is a dangerous product used in, in refining gold. Right, so this is about moving the standard setting for environmental and social impacts of mining to the global scale, while specific what I call participatory mechanisms, which include things like corporate social responsibility, corporate community development programs, gender mainstreaming, participatory environmental monitoring. These all organise at very local scales, you know, around mine sites and the communities that surround them. Now, the second part of your question. Why hasn't this produced positive outcomes? Uh, that's a massive question in, in, in itself. But yes, these dozens and dozens of global governance mechanisms and the participatory mechanisms that, that are based in them, I don't, I don't want to say that they haven't produced any positive outcomes because there are examples of local communities using things like grievance mechanisms just to secure more compensation to secure higher environmental standards, environmental controls that do result in positive material impacts, right? However, all of these standards, because they're created by multinational corporations and their financiers and their allies in various governments and international organizations, they are never going to question if extractivism is the best strategy for development in any given location, right? So they fundamentally cannot question if mining is a good developmental strategy and they can only tinker around the edges with more compensation, better deals, that kind of thing. On the other hand, the relocalization of participation around mining tends to demobilize resistance, right? And that's why the the title of my book is Undermining Resistance. Because if you have, for example, a corporate community development program that's about providing defined development outcomes in a particular location, that can then occupy all of the resources of the the community instead of, you know, forming those kind of international national alliances that can create the kinds of crisis of legitimacy to challenge mining. A big part of your research is about these participatory mechanisms that multinational mining companies use to generate legitimacy within mining affected communities in Indonesia. You mentioned just before a whole range of different programs like corporate social responsibility and gender mainstreaming and so forth. Aren't those attempts to outreach and connect to local communities an inherently good thing? Doesn't it enable communities to have a voice? Yeah, so we have this local Participatory mechanisms, like I said, this includes corporate social responsibility. You know, the new buzzword, the new umbrella term is environmental and and social governance, ESG, Uh, includes corporate community development, participatory development, gender mainstreaming. Uh, All of these terms go in and out of fashion. But regardless of what we call them, as I said before, these participatory mechanisms are never able to question if extraction is the best pathway for development. Now, we can say that it's a good thing if if local communities, if uh, activists and NGOs and advocates have more avenues to have a voice uh, 
mechanisms for engaging and improving outcomes, we can say that's that's a good thing. But we also need to say, we also need to analyse who they're actually working for. I mean, in your work, you argue that multinational miners have subverted, avoided, reconfigured, undermined or depoliticised resistance, opposition and conflict through new participatory mechanisms. Those are fighting words. <laughs> Can you talk us through some examples of, of what you've seen and documented in your research? Yeah, great. I guess I guess they are kind of fighting words. I, I wanted this to be to be a strong intervention, and I think that the best example that I have from my fieldwork that uh, demonstrates this undermining, this subversion, or, or reconfiguration, of, and depoliticization of conflict is in North Halmahera. This surrounds a, a gold mine that was owned and operated by the Australian company Newcrest Mining Limited. Uh, now, it's a very long story, but to give you the, the summary, in the initial stages around this mine, there was lots of conflict, there were lots of protests, a large cross-class alliance formed between farmers, fishers, between politicians at all different levels including up to the, the Bupati and even into provincial level politics, this cross-class social alliance formed was contending or accusing Newcrest of polluting rivers, of polluting the bay, of exploiting traditional lands without giving just compensation, right? What Newcrest did in, in response to this, well, they did several things in, in response, but the thing I'll, I'll focus on as, as an example right now is they developed a 1% fund. And the 1% fund is, is a relatively common mechanism for multinational mining companies. It essentially means they take 1% of their gross operating revenues and direct that 1% of gross operating revenues towards community development programs. Now, in the case of Newcrest, they've aligned their 1% fund to operate in a very similar way or side by side with the Indonesian government's Dana Desa, right, the village fund. So that supports existing village-level power structures. And what I saw uh, digging through this case is that it was at that point when most of those politicians, the village heads, the other beneficiaries of, of the development projects, the beneficiaries of that development, they felt satisfied. And that removed their need or removed their motivation to be going out there and protesting and blockading and organizing politically and so on. That left the farmers and the fishers who still felt that they were directly impacted by the contamination in, in the river and in, in their food, uh, that left them very politically isolated and they didn't have the support of the, the village government structures anymore because the village government structures were administering this 1% fund. So the 1% fund, this community development participatory mechanism, was very good at breaking down the alliance that was resisting the mine and resisting the environmental impacts of the mine. This is such an interesting case because the the argument against would be that uh, the 1% fund, which must have been a sizable amount of money, would go towards um, improving things around the village, things like maternal mortality, um, core e education, health. Uh, could it help transition fisher people and farmers away from that sector into better paying jobs potentially with the mine? Why did that 1% not benefit the wider community? 
Yeah, great, great question. And we see that that 1% fund was used for all different kinds of projects at, at, at different times. You know, a significant amount, at least initially, of that 1% fund was used to subsidize rice. Uh, in a, in Hamahera is, is a region that doesn't grow much rice itself. So it was used, and that's really important for supporting you know, the nutrition of, of families. Uh, it's been used for all different kinds of village projects for building fences and even through to creating industries in processing things like cassava in different kinds of plantations and processing facilities to try to upgrade production. What I saw, and this is an interesting element of, and and one of the reasons why I mentioned that the 1% fund operated side by side and followed similar kinds of structures as the Dana Dessa was there was incredibly different outcomes in different villages Right. So the 1% fund was spread across, and uh, the number of villages again changed over time, but was spread across uh, dozens of different villages. In villages that already had a, a democratic structure, that already had a more egalitarian distribution, I think that that 1% fund supported this. And that 1% fund did then benefit a broad number of, of, of citizens of, of those villages. In other villages, where the village governance structures were less democratic, were more controlled by a particular faction or a particular family, then that 1% fund was, again, directed along similar lines and only benefited those particular entrenched interests within those villages and didn't have support of people. So despite recognising the power inequalities in these contests between communities and multinational miners, You suggest it's also not a fait accompli that capital and corporations will kind of win the battle. Why have some communities had better success than others in resisting mining? And what does that success look like? Okay, I think this is the most important question that we need to ask about extractive industries, whether it's in Indonesia or or anywhere else. How can uh, people affected by mining, local communities and all their allies, how can they organise, whether it's whether they want to resist the mine or whether they want to achieve better outcomes or whether they, you know, whatever it is, how do they organise to achieve the best outcomes possible, right? And one of the examples in my, uh, one of the case studies, one chapter uh, in my upcoming book uh, is about such a group that managed to achieve the impossible. So the the BPLP in Kulomprogo, the Association of Shoreline Farmers, right? This is an organization, a small group of people whose land and livelihoods were threatened by a proposal to establish a mine. They successfully resisted the attempt, right? They did not merely extract concessions or a greater level of compensation, but they defeated an alliance and this alliance was a significant alliance, right? The alliance, who the, the proponents of the mine included both of the royal families in Jogjakarta, right? The, the Sultan's family and the Pakualaman included the Regency level government. It included Rajawali Corporation, you know, one of the largest uh, domestic conglomerates in Indonesia and the Australian parent company, right? So it's multinational as well. And this small group of farmers, locally based farmers who, who grow chilies and melons were able to organise and successfully resist the huge political power or the huge, what we would expect to be a huge political power of this alliance. 
how did they do this? That's the that's the number one important question to to answer. Uh, and to to summarize really quickly, I identify four factors. Uh, it was through the control of land, right? They never gave up their land. They never stopped farming, and they never stopped occupying their land. Secondly is their, their histories of organization, their organizational structures, and their capacity to organize. They had long histories of organizing independently of capital and the state. Critically, they weren't relying upon the sultan and, and the uh, Paco Alam royal families in, in Jogjakarta to, you know, for, the, for their survival, so they were able to organize independently of them. The third factor, they were able to develop national and international alliances. So again, we come back, I mentioned in the beginning, this kind of jumping scales to create crises of, of legitimacy, right? They were able to do that. The final point is one of ideology, right? And this, this particular group of farmers had an ideological outlook or common sense view of the world that included the idea that uh, land is for the people, that land isn't something that can be bought and sold. Uh, you know, these are things that, that we associate with a history of uh, if we can call it left nationalism in Indonesia, bringing all these four factors together is what gave them the ability, but also the belief and the bravery to be able to organize and resist independent of the provincial, the Jogjakarta, the Indonesian and the international power brokers and power structures that were all aligned against them. I guess that brings us full circle in some ways to the start of this conversation where you talked about how um, multinational mining has trans been transformed into a largely domestic ownership. What has been the effect of nationalising ownership? Doesn't nationalising ownership of the extractive industry offer the promise of local redistribution and long-term community jobs in processing, which would ultimately benefit the the overall prosperity of these communities? There, there is the assumption and, and the consistent argument is made that resource nationalism will benefit the people, right? That Indonesia's natural resources should be used uh, for maximum exploitation, for maximum benefit of, of the people overall. However, like I said, I think the answer to your first question was talking about the kind of alliance that is developed to shape extractivism in Indonesia is an alliance between the government executive between the largest conglomerates in Indonesia, uh, multinational mining companies and, and finance financiers, and the military. And the military, but to, a, to a, a much smaller extent now than during the New Order years. But if this is the coalition that is shaping extractivism in their own interests, then I don't think it's much of a surprise if we don't see those benefits trickling down to, you know, ordinary Indonesians, right? We could see, so there's, as, as a counterexample, if we look at the so-called uh, pink tide in South America, right, we have a similar kind of extractivism and resource nationalism that was enacted by very left-wing governments or at least by so-called, this is a whole other debate that, that we don't need to get into, but was enacted by uh, more left-wing governments than what we have in Indonesia. And those resources the, or the, the profits from extraction were used to fund extensive social programs. We don't see that in, in Indonesia. I think that's just an empirical reality. 
One thing that we've been trying to think about, particularly this year, as the Jokowi administration comes to an end, maybe in this like little fraction of quiet before we get into the frenzy of the next election, is to think a bit about the the legacy of a two-term Jokowi administration. Seen from the unique perspective of the extractive industry, what does that look like for you? So... What is the legacy of of the Jokowi administration and what can the extractive lens, if you will, tell us about that? Well, as many of your listeners would be familiar with, there has been a very aggressive legislative agenda since uh, 2019, right? And this is, of course, as as, uh, you would know much better than I do, the undermining of the KPK, the Anti-Corruption Commission in 2019. Uh, then in 2020, we saw new the new law on mineral and coal mining, which very much rebalances power in favour of mining companies and undermines the rights of people to oppose, uh, to interfere with mining, creates new, um, new criminal charges for interfering or obstructing mining and mining-related activities. Of course, also we saw the, the omnibus law on, on job creation, which included gutting regulations on environmental protection and management. And then the criminal code just earlier this year actually reduced the liability of corporations and the sanctions that were contained in the environmental protection and management law for contraventions of, of those regulations, right? So we see a reduction of liability and sanctions that apply to corporations and powerful people that contravene environmental protection, but an increase in the different charges that are available and the penalties that apply to communities and activists that resist. So I think overall, this is a reassertion of state power in favor of extractive conglomerates. Okay. Uh, And of course, not just in the extractive industries, but all, all through the economy, this is a blow against organized labor, against environmentalists, against feminists and students and any oppositional groups. In terms of the legacy and what I think what I think my research and, and, a, and a look at extractive industries specifically can tell us is that in terms of the legacy of this, this is sowing the, the seeds of future crises. If there are less avenues for participation, for people that are affected by mining, for advocates and activists and NGOs, if there are less avenues for these people to, to have the say and have their voice, this will generate more crises. And if these crises are able to jump to international scales, right, just as crises around Freeport and Grassberg were in the the 1990s and just as we've seen all around the world, uh, this could create new appeals to new forms of global governance and international intervention. That is such a fascinating observation. So in some ways you're suggesting we're kind of moving away from the age of co-optive participation towards a period of criminalization and slash heightened conflict. It's hard to say for certain at this moment, but that's the danger, right? That's that that is the danger. And I think that is a, a, a dangerous uh, route because it results in more people being criminalized, in more violence against everyday uh, Indonesians, against farmers, against fishers, against Indigenous peoples and, and so on. So I think that that is a very dangerous uh, pathway. Your most recent work, Leon, is turning towards the new extractive minerals like 
uh, nickel, which we're seeing all over the news right now. What are the characteristics of these new mineral economies that you're observing, and particularly in terms of their relationship with communities and managing conflict? The new global push for net zero emissions, for new green technologies that can respond to the climate crisis, these are all predicated on renewable energy, electric vehicles, all of which require mining of a different set of minerals uh, in different locations. So in some locations and in some, for some minerals, we're seeing a dramatic increase in the amount of mining that's required. And first and foremost, particularly as far as Indonesia is concerned, is nickel. Right. And I've been working uh, a little bit recently with my fellow Asia Research Centre, uh, Murdoch University graduate, Tricia Wijaya, on the story of nickel in, in Indonesia. And it's quite, it's quite amazing. So up to 50 kilograms of nickel is required for every electric vehicle. You know, nickel is, is a crucial part of lithium-ion batteries. And the, the Jokowi government plans to and has been uh, plugging into this global demand in order to capture more of the development and more of the value uh, of this industry within Indonesia through further refining battery-grade nickel in uh, industrial centres, in industrial parks in central Sulawesi and central Hamahera. You know, the resource nationalist strategies have been very effective at creating nickel smelters in Indonesia, but these, these existing smelters produce a kind of nickel uh, quality that's class, um, class two nickel. That's good for stainless steel production, right? They need to now create a new generation of smelters that are called HPOW, uh, <laughs> high pressure acid leaching uh, smelters or refineries that produce class one nickel products that are of a, that are of a certain um, grade, a certain quality that can be used in the production of lithium iron batteries. Now, there are all sorts of debates and environmental and social impacts uh, around this. Um, what, what, what Tricia and I are looking at together is the way that the biggest extractive conglomerates who have made their fortunes in coal mining, you know, and we're talking here about Buckery Group, about Indica Energy uh, and this new state-owned alliance uh, of Indonesia Battery Corporation, reorganizing the interests of these previously mostly coal-focused extractive industries around this new green extractivism, right, in extracting nickel. And you can say, okay, we can say, well, isn't this a good thing? Isn't it great if we're seeing a shift from, from coal? Of course, we need to get rid of fossil fuels. Isn't it great if we're seeing a shift from fossil fuels to minerals that can support green technology, right? Well, a certain amount of that might be, might be very good. Again, we're seeing similar alliances that I mentioned much, much earlier, the large domestic conglomerates combining now with multinational corporations, but we're now looking at multinational corporations in terms of battery manufacturers from China, including automakers from South Korea, like Hyundai and from Japan. If these alliances, are they also shaping net zero climate policy in their interests? So they're creating the kind of net zero climate policies that allow and support continued extraction, maximal extraction of, of mineral resources, which is particularly concerning 
if we combine that with what we were talking about a minute ago with, you know, continued criminalization and undermining of the environmental standards for extraction and, and refining of these minerals uh, in Indonesia. So it's particular, it could be particularly concerning and, and is already. It seems to me that these participatory mechanisms um, only are brought up and global governance standards and attempts to uh, regulate more sectors more ethically, they are produced, as you said, through crises of legitimation, right? And would you argue that nickel is already in experiencing a crisis of legitimation, given the kind of headlines it's, it's attracting? Nickel in Indonesia is experiencing somewhat of a crisis of legitimacy. And this has led, uh, you know, I think this has led Elon Musk and, and Tesla to, to step away from some of the earlier discussions they were having about, about sourcing nickel from Indonesia and they're looking at other sources of nickel. In a global context, though, nickel is, is replacing some of the cobalt in lithium-ion batteries. Right. So we have these new uh, nickel-rich batteries, which is reducing the amount of cobalt needed per battery. Now, of course, 90-something percent of, of cobalt in the world comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, right, where there are huge concerns about uh, human rights, child labour, uh, you know, forced labour. Again, does that mean that eliminating cobalt and, and improving conditions in Democratic Republic of Congo justifies costs to a different group of people, of, of farmers and fishers in, in Sulawesi? No. Well, I think the question is, will communities that are affected by nickel mining, will they be able to use the ethical imperative of solving climate change as another organising tool? Will they be able to access different actors within that global production network, whether it's the, the likes of Tesla and Hyundai or whether that's other intermediaries along that the production network, will they be able to influence those actors using the same factors that, that I mentioned earlier around control of land, the independent organisation, alliance structures and ideology? Does that give them another avenue for organising better outcomes or to be able to more effectively resist minds that are undesirable? That sounds like an amazing place to end it, Leanne. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks again to Dr. Leon Sinclair, uh, postdoctoral research associate in geography at the School of Geosciences at the University of Sydney. You can find some of Leon's work in the links in the show notes on Twitter at Leon Sinclair and keep an eye out for announcements about her book later this year. Talking Indonesia will return in a fortnight. You can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Jackie Baker. Bye for now.